0: one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Todd Presner to talk about the ethics of the algorithm. Professor Presner is the chair of UCLA's Digital Humanities Program and the Ross Professor of Germanic Languages and Comparative Literature. Dr. Presner's work covers a broad swath of topics at the intersection of ethics, tech, and the humanities. From his book, Mobile Modernity, Germans-Jews Trains, published by Columbia University Press in 2007, which maps German-Jewish intellectual history onto the development of the railway system, to Digital Humanities, published by MIT Press in 2012, and co-authored with Ann Burdick, Joanna Drucker, Peter Lunenfeld, and Jeffrey Schnapp, which proposes a critical theoretical exploration of the emerging field of digital humanities. From 2005 to 2015, he was the director of HyperCities, a collaborative digital mapping platform that explores the layered history of digital spaces. His book, based on the project, HyperCities, Thick Mapping in the Digital Humanities, Harvard University Press 2014 with David Shepard and Yo Kawano, explores digital mapping using the HyperCities project, which was awarded the Digital Media and Learning Prize by the MacArthur Foundation in 2008. He teaches and writes on a broad array of subjects from the digital humanities to the ethics of Holocaust representation. Since 2018, Professor Presner is the Associate Dean of Digital Innovation in the Division of the Humanities and the advisor to the Vice Chancellor of Research for the Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences Research at UCLA. Hi, Todd. Hmm. Hello. Uh, I want to start with a memory that has stayed in my mind since I was a teeny tiny scholar at UCLA. I don't know whether you remember this, but the first time I met you, you were working on a project at UCLA called HyperCities. It was just in the wake of the Arab Spring, and HyperCities had engaged Twitter data from Egyptian urban spaces to get a democratic sense of what was going on on the, on the ground in a way that the more formal media channels could not do at that time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the project, specifically in the context of the Arab Spring and then in general. How does this kind of dynamic mapping that you were able to do using this Twitter data change your understanding of this event or other historical events? What does this technology and the platform add to our knowledge and understanding? And how does this project change our understanding, conversely, of mapping as what we might call an epistemological system.
1: Thanks for (laughs) bringing that memory uh, to the foreground, Deb. And it's really nice to be here as part of um, your podcast. I'm really honored to uh, speak about these issues. 2011 was was really an interesting year for HyperCities. HyperCities, I should say, is a digital mapping platform which we built off of Google Earth But the idea was to allow people to go back in time. It was kind of seen as a time travel machine. And perhaps that's a little bit simplistic in some ways, because you can never really go back in time, but you can tell stories about the past. And telling stories in a digitally enabled medium, where you could bring together a wide range of sources, whether it's video, photographs, models, historical maps, narratives, and that those narratives and stories would intersect one another because no story and no past is, you know, alone, right? And the, they all intersect in interesting and, and, and sometimes profound and troubling ways. And, and the idea of hypercities was actually thinking about the digital extension of physical cities. So you have, you know, cities, built spaces. Hypercities are all those parts of the, the time, the past, but also the present and the future all of the archives, the digitally enabled material that could connect directly with the physical space of the city. And in 2011, we started doing an experiment where we were very interested in how social media, particularly Twitter, was being used in real time to convey messages to the world. And it wasn't widely used at this time. So, I mean, this is, you know, Twitter was by no means as pervasive as it is today. So, In Egypt, for example, was less than, significantly less than 1% of the population was actually tweeting what was going on in Tahrir Square. But what was really interesting to us is that these tweets were being made. They were often being made in real time and from real spaces. And we knew that because phones began to have GPS-enabled geolocation of tweets. And we thought it would be great to actually visualize these in real time. And so we took a map uh, of Egypt and we began in real time visualizing where the tweets were coming from. And it became kind of like a live stream of voices from within the event. We archived those tweets because we thought it would be important to have an archive of the voices of people in real time. And we also visualized them and studied them to understand you know, aspects uh, of the very early days of what was called the Arab Spring. This was also the case, we archived tweets from Libya and Tunisia, and that work was actually interrupted by another, uh, in this case, not a human-made event, but rather a natural catastrophe, which is that on twenty eleven, the massive Earthquake and tsunami and nuclear disaster began in Japan. And we also archived in there millions of tweets from Japan, largely focused on disaster relief. Because one of the things we realized, and one of what my colleague Yo Kawano has really done over the years, is looked at how social media not only is the voice of real people in real places but it can be used to coordinate efforts, like in this case, disaster relief, particularly focused on where people were stranded and where people needed help. So there's a whole platform that he's worked on and he's a co-collaborator in hypercities called Ushahidi, which looks at how social media can be used in crisis moments, including first in Haiti in 2010, uh, later in 2011 in Japan, and then from there, other places. Again, the fact is that social media is essentially eyewitness media on location and can be used for historical reasons and it can be used in in crisis situations.
0: I mean, I want to dig deeper on this idea that, that you're using social media with this kind of focus. How does the use of Twitter in this project change what we think of as these social media platforms' tendency to be used in quite I think we might say more superfluous ways, Twitter in particular, but also Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all of these virtual networks of these kind. I don't think that most people think of disaster relief when they think of Mm -hmm. the utility of Twitter, right? right? I think we tend to think of it in much more, as I said, superfluous ways. So how does this change what we think of these social media enterprises?
1: Right. Well, it's interesting. The way I had thought of these social media and my colleagues was precisely in these I mean, maybe more utilitarian yeah. ways, or in disaster relief ways, or also ways of expanding the record of what we know about events. Right? I mean, when a reporter goes on location and interviews a couple people in traditional broadcast media, we know how centralized that is. We know how limited the number of people they can talk to would be, and we also know, of course, you know, through corporate channels and so forth, that you know we're only going to have pieces of the story. And this is not to say that Twitter by any means is you know, revolutionary in this regard. We also know that Twitter is a corporate media, which is, we know, scrubbed and fully you know, regulated as well. But I think that it's interesting to talk about the bar of access that exists for participation in these media, right? So the fact is that you know anybody can log on and create uh, accounts, and we know that, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of my 12-year-old on TikTok. I mean, you know, he poses and creates videos and suddenly they get hundreds of views, thousands maybe. And, you know, the bar of entry is really low. And that actually is interesting to me because it does allow a dimension of participation in media creation and idea dissemination that I think is important. And it also allows a certain amount of, of friction, which is good. I think that we've also realized that social media has a dark, uh, dark side and underbelly. I mean, one thinks of Cambridge Analytica. One thinks of the way in which Facebook and other social media platforms are not only subject to a tremendous amount of, you know, are using a tremendous amount of data harvesting that they're selling, uh, that they're also, uh, you know, proceeding in you know, terribly unscrutinized ways. This is. You know another part. You know I think of I think we've talked about this maybe before, but I I firmly believe that every technology is dialectical. It has it has two sides, right? It it enables certain things. So it enables participation. It enables you know the the bar of participation I said is very low. But there's an underbelly, right? There's a, there's a dark side, and and that dark side is that regimes can utilize these these media. We know that happened in Iran. We know that happened, you know, in in Egypt for that matter with Twitter data. It's not always being used for democratic ends or for the pursuit of freedom. It can be used for very authoritarian ends. It can be used for uh, corporate ends. It can also be used to change elections. <laughs> you know, so, so let's uh, you know, not, I mean, I think of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, they're two sides of the same coin.
0: There's so many different directions I could take that, but my mind was a little bit stuck on the fact that he's 12 now. So,
1: Uh, yeah, I know. (laughs) I'm a little stuck on that still.
0: I should also mention that when I first met you in 2010. In much simpler times, alongside hypercities, you were teaching classes on the Holocaust. One of my first classes as a graduate student at UCLA was your course on witnessing memory and, and Holocaust theory. And you have a background in German studies and comparative literature that lies as your foundation, as, as part of your thinking as a scholar. What led you to become interested in the digital humanities and how did you get there? How does your background as a humanist inflect your understanding of the digital?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Thanks for, thanks for asking me that. I guess, you know, part of it I, I blame on my parents in a good way, which is uh, for having the foresight to, you know, buy me a Commodore 64 when I was uh, in sixth grade and teaching me how to program in BASIC and FORTRAN and, and actually writing my own kind of multiplayer Computer games, you know, when I was when I was a kid, and that was, you know, they were not very graphically intensive by any means. This is not Fortnite. This is basically like Zork, and uh, and the idea was, you know, I was really interested in in how you had this machine that can be that could be programmed, that could be, and, and that there was a certain amount of media creation um, that was so open ended in, in how it worked, and so I think that was part of it. But the other part of it was. I went to Germany um, for the first time in the mid-1990s, right after finishing uh, my undergraduate education. And it was a really interesting period in German history because basically Germany had had been, there was East Germany, there was West Germany until 1989, 1990, when the wall came down, you had a country being put back together again. I literally stitched back together in the case of Berlin and it was a massive architectural urban planning issue but it was also as much a social issue and a historical issue and a political issue how does germany come to terms with all these different layers of the past right the fascist past the communist you know past which is of course right up until you know the the fall of the wall but also you know thinking through about what what is germany as as a nation as a country as as a as a culture and you know what is it that they're going to memorialize, especially about the Holocaust and the history of Nazism. I mean, most of the memorials and monuments and museums that we're used to today, these were not up in you know 1995, 90, 1996. And so there was a tremendous public debate about the physical layers of the past and that's actually where hypercities began. I mean, hypercities was, was all about the layers of the past. How are they visible or not visible? You know, what do we care to mark or not mark? What's actually memorialized, right? How does the how does the past become part of who we are in the present or or not, right? I mean, these debates are happening in the U.S. right <laughs> with regard to you know how people think about what's memorialized of the Confederacy, and and in Germany, you know, when I think about you know some of these issues. I mean, Germany has gone through a tremendous amount of upheaval with regard to removing statues, removing monuments, renaming streets, naming them again and again, you know, depending on the political regime that's in, in, in place. But so much of what they were doing in the 1990s and early 2000s was the beginning of what I would call reparative justice. I mean, it's, you know, we use that term in other contexts, but I truly believe that it was coming to terms with the legacy and violence and history of the Holocaust in honest and searching ways, and they did so through a series of very, very difficult public debates, you know, debates with, you know, government officials, policy, education, cultural and social leaders. And to me, you know, trying to think about, okay, how would one how does one actually map or think about you know, the past, right? Especially when it's seeping out of the ground, right? When you're thinking uh, about how do you constitute a way of, of understanding the complexity of all these different layers. And that's essentially what HyperCity says. It's basically taking the notion of physical layers, like layers of time, and making them uh, not only palpable but annotatable and allowing people to tell stories about those, those parts of the past. The physical and the digital here are intimately connected. And that's how I how I came to digital humanities and how I linked German and, and the digital together.
0: This is really great because you're essentially really identifying a link on the personal level between the history and human values and the fraught context of human debate with the growth of a technological counterpart, and you're really showing, at least for how for you, those two things come together. And as long as we're talking history, maybe we should actually back up and tease that out on a broader uh, macro scale and give our listeners some history for this thing that we're calling the digital humanities, which is now a major field. As a field, that seems to me to be pretty new, relatively speaking. So how did we, on a macro level, get to the digital Humanities, not as two separate things, but as a combined project or a new field. And when did it become a key player in the broader humanities?
1: Right. That's a, that's a great question. There are a lot of different terms that are that are used to describe the digital humanities. I mean, I I don't think of digital as a term that qualifies the humanities. I don't think of it as you know an adjective that modifies it, like the humanities is now digital. But actually, what does it mean to bring the digital or the computational? So as a method, right, as as a set of methods together with humanistic inquiry and methods. So the two stand on their own. They're not in tension with one another, and they're not one modifying the other. I think of the digital humanities as kind of a collective singular. So again... Bringing computational tools and methodologies. Digital, you know, by definition means quantitative, right? I mean, it refers to the digits, it refers to counting. And so, you know, what computers do really well is they, they, they count, they help us to analyze using quantifiable means and metrics that's ostensibly at loggerheads, you know, with the humanities, which, you know, really is about narrative. It's about ambiguity. It's about complexity. It's about, in many ways, it's, it's a kind of about the qualitative, right? I mean, certainly the historical and humanistic and literary fields harness the imagination, speculative thinking, language, expressivity, art, music in ways that sometimes, you know, are not, you know, are not quantifiable. And, and so really it becomes, what does it mean to bring two sets of methodologies together? This is not, again, like an either or. That The beauty of the digital humanities is that there are times when quantifiable metrics and computational tools are extremely useful in managing, say, scale, you know, like huge amounts of material and can find patterns or, you know, connections that a human being couldn't possibly see because they're not able to work, you know, they're not able to put your head around, you know, the the, the size, the material. At the same time, I believe that the humanities has a set of interpretive methods and tools and values that are absolutely central for the way we think about the the computational. In fact, the whole questions of ethics, you know, which are really central to my work, that come out of the humanistic traditions, I think, have to be brought on the way we think about the computational. Computational work is never neutral or value-free or objective. It's always in the service of certain things. And, you know, I know that's something we want to talk about a little bit later, but for me, that's that's really why I think the digital and the humanities have to come together. I think one in many ways without the other, certainly the digital without the humanistic, we've already seen, you know, I mentioned Cambridge Analytica earlier, but, you know, any kind of process of, you know, inscrutable out of control algorithms, data harvesting, whether it's facial recognition, voice recognition, creations of blacklists and databases that, you know, are being essentially turned People into a means for some other end, this is all, you know, radically unethical. And this is also where I think, you know, knowledge of and grounding in the humanities is so important.
0: Thank you for letting me deliver my now bi weekly PSA to take your humanities classes seriously. But I wanted to come back to something that you had said earlier. You know, you already identified one critique. Of the digital humanities by humanists. And that is that oftentimes what humanist thinking and humanist methodologies do is really focus on the individual, not the statistic, not the broad swaths. And oftentimes the individual gets lost in those kind of calculations that focus on the big swaths. The other critique that I continuously hear in the humanities about the technical turn is that it comes out of a kind of almost inferiority complex in the humanities to, and I'm using air quotes here, you can't see them, stay relevant. Where do you think that these critiques are coming from, and and what do you think that they tell us about the state of the humanities? The
1: implication is that the humanities are, are either not relevant or on the on the border of relevancy, and I, I certainly don't don't share that. I think certainly, given our present moment, I mean, the knowledge of historicity uh, is is so important for just even imagining agency and, and action. I think, you know, what do the humanities bring? Why do we need the humanities uh, at this moment? I think one is historical perspective. It's absolutely critical. One, a second is values, right? I mean, and these are values in terms of whether we're talking about democratic values, we're talking about uh, empathy, we're talking about ethics, we're talking about community, questions around sociality, questions around culture, questions around embodiment, right? Questions around race and gender and sexuality. These are all such a, such a critical part of the lineage of, of what the humanities does. So, you know, I think of uh, gender studies, ethnic studies, critical race studies, you know, work that's been done. I mean, it's a labor studies, I would add as well, you know, work that's been done since the 1960s you know, and 70s uh, in very profound ways. And that needs to be brought together with how we think about technologies. Again, technologies are not, we can say they're disembodied, but ultimately, at, at their core, they're they're created by human beings and and for particular ends and and they do certain things and are often endowed with a certain kind of certain amount of of, of agency as well. So I would say the humanities are really quite relevant for any discussion uh, uh, about technology, and as soon as you cut the humanities out, I think you're in uh, you know a very dangerous uh, a very dangerous place. Precisely because you you've created a a technified and and really a disembodied understanding of of how you know of how technologies can operate or how they do operate. Let me just say that you know as regard to thinking about the humanities, you know being I would say even more relevant. I mean, think about, I've tended to use that this is another hyper term, but uh, the term hyper object is a term that Timothy Morton had coined a number of years ago to talk about issues or projects that were simply just way bigger than what any one person or discipline could possibly deal with. So as an example, like, you know, environmental catastrophes, biodiversity loss, the Anthropocene, those are examples of, you know, there are issues that are so big and and, and so profound that you know you need the perspectives of many different disciplines to address them you know you need you know biologists and you need climate scientists but you also need sociologists and you need humanists because the issues are so complex think of like the another example would be like the you know megacity. you know how, how did one study a city right you know you could study it from a perspective of architecture or planning i suppose but that's only part of it, because what about lived experience? What about sociologists? what about culture? what about you know song? what about uh, lived experiences? Or, you know, I mean, the pandemic that we're currently in, I mean, we all know that this has a significant, as much as it's a medical and health crisis, it's also a social crisis and an economic crisis and a cultural crisis, right? And we already know how differentiated the effects of the crisis are on rural communities, of Black and brown communities. We cannot approach these large-scale problems, whether it's, you know, megacities, the environment, uh, health, pandemic. In ways that are limited to just singular disciplines. Uh, we need, this is why we need the humanities together with the social sciences, together with policy fields, together with the hard sciences, together with the medical sciences. That to me is a way that the humanities are not only relevant, but that the humanities can actually lead. Right. The humanities, humanistic questions need to be at the forefront in how we're thinking about whether it's a response to the pandemic or the future of democracy or, you know, environmental catastrophe. or megacities. I mean, if, if the humanities are not really at the forefront here, not only is something very profound being left out, but often the solutions that are being found tend to be essentially not particularly human. (laughs) <laughs> that is to say, they tend to be maybe engineering ones that, or ones that are technical, but they fail to understand the social specificity, or the cultural specificity, or the particular embodiment, uh, especially around issues of race and gender, that you know are, are absolutely profoundly, profoundly part of, of the very you know problems that we're looking at.
0: I mean, you've convinced me. Sometimes I think I have a hard time convincing institutions or other structures that that's the case, and sometimes that division is so ossified that it's really hard to overcome it. Anecdotally, what comes to mind for me is, and maybe we can use a topographical or a a kind of landscape to, to understand this problem, because I remember when I was at UCLA, one of the deepest impressions my time on campus made on me was a stark divide between the humanities and the science or technological fields that was, in fact, very topographic is ingrained in the very structure of the campus. The campus was notoriously divided between humanists and the sciences into the separate areas of North and South campus. And I, as I only partially jokingly tell people, South campus had functional air conditioning and the projectors always worked. And North campus had steeples and gargoyles and a sculpture garden. And you can probably guess who lived in which neighborhood. But if you can't, uh, North campus, steeples and gargoyles, was where the humanists had their home and South Campus, which had functional air conditioning and AV equipment. was the home of science and tech and, and really the two never should meet. So went the topographical divide, but but I've been gone for a few Mm. years. Do you see a lot of cooperation between technologists and humanists on campus? And if so, how do you understand that shift?
1: You know, I I do, and 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 more and more so. And and it's really great that the boundary between north and south, so to speak, on the UCLA campus is starting to erode. Uh, I can't say that it's gone. There's no no question about that. But nevertheless. You know there are approaches now. I mean, especially with regard to what's been called, you know, at UCLA, data X. Uh, data X is precisely not just data sciences, but also data cultures, data societies, approaching you know data narratives. And I would also add data justice. Like, how can big data be used for social justice ends which I can talk a little bit about a class that I teach on on exactly this issue in order to realize such a class you need folks from the computational sciences working together with folks from the social sciences and the humanities and the arts in order to again imagine those those interlinkages my own you know recently work has been on something we've been calling broadly the experimental humanities and that's a term that I I like actually quite a bit lately it includes the digital humanities, the urban humanities, the environmental humanities, the health humanities, public humanities. And, and it's basically, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier around these these large scale wicked problems that require so many different disciplinary and methodological approaches in order to, in order to even address them, even in order to conceptualize the problem, right? How do you conceptualize environmental justice if you're not bringing in, you know, again, climate scientists talking to, you know, folks in anthropology, talking to folks in the arts, talking to humanists, and also thinking about, you know, data. And and of course, data never stands on its own. Data needs narrative, right? (laughs) Data needs narrative to interpret it, to make sense of it, to put it into a story, to to convince people. One of the most important places where, you know, you harness data is obviously for policy, right? For policy advocacy and work. So the experimental humanities, you know, have that kind of the the root uh, of it being, you know, experiments, things you try, you carry out. I mean, is an aspect of experimental, of experiences, of trial and trying. There's also aspects of practicality. I mean, it is applied. That is to say, the knowledge is put into practice. And, and I would also say, you know, kind of like references the idea of subversion of knowledge too. One thinks of like experimental film or experimental art, particularly genres that that perhaps, you know, undermine certain expectations that we have about what that genre is. And so I like, I like the idea of thinking about the humanities as both experimental in the sense of collaborative experiments, you know, trying things, but also in terms of subverting uh, certain kinds of ossified knowledge. And that the humanities again being in the driver's seat, right? That, that to me is so critical. The humanities is not sprinkled in at the end, like oh, let's stir in some humanities now, or like let's ask you know an ethicist you know what they think after we've gone down the road of you know Cambridge Analytica or something. But no, they're there from the very beginning because uh, the idea is that the, the problems can only be conceptualized in their complexity when everyone's at the table together, when there is this truly kind of north-south, as you said. East and West, whatever we can add to, you know, interactions between scholars, students, and and I would also say it's not just in terms of disciplines; it's also in terms of engaging, you know, undergraduates, grad students, postdocs, faculty, librarians, technologists, but also communities, right, and and partnerships that are not exploitive, but really looking at the ways in which the university and the communities that the university is in, how how they can how they can work together, not in an extractive way, right, of extracting knowledge from communities but letting communities also participate in knowledge production and and for universities to learn about what community knowledge and community advocacy means from the partners themselves.
0: You know, you mentioned ethic and algorithms earlier and something that we would get to later, and I didn't want to let that slide. You work on the ethical implication of data and in particular of algorithms and before we get in this topic maybe we should just lay the playing field a little bit in terms of defining our terms can you define those terms ethics and algorithm
1: sure I will definitely try there's those are, those are uh, notoriously difficult and they're ones that are at the forefront as as you mentioned of, of so much of my work uh, lately perhaps ethics could be defined in, in a somewhat simple way which is really a question of what should I do or what ought I do? You know, the question of should. Uh, <laughs> and so it raises the question of, you know, choice and decision-making, right? Should I do this or should I not? Ought I do this or ought I not? And you could think of this, you know, again, let's take our Cambridge Analytica model as an example. Ought I <laughs> harvest this data and sell it for certain means without the knowledge of the participants? Or, or perhaps should I not do that? Ought I, you know, so this is, this is, this is I think, an ethical question. Um, an ethical question demands a decision and an understanding of consequences, and whether a person or a community is being treated as a means to an end. Right. So that also kind of you know I'm referencing you know Kant uh, and, and his thinking here. Algorithms yeah. can be defined as basically a set of instructions for a computer to execute. Usually, algorithms are composed of a logical component, which is basically what is to be done in terms of abstraction and definition of variables and how it is to be done. You know, what are the processes or procedures by which it's being executed? That's, That's an algorithm. So it's a set of instructions that tell the computer what to do and how to do it. The issue is that there's no why, right? We have what and how, but what about why? Why are we doing this? For whom, in the name of whom, right? Who is doing it? Should it be done, right? That's the ethical question. So what I'm interested in doing is bringing that very ethical question of should it or audit to be part of how we think about algorithms. Algorithms are really good at telling us what to do or telling the computer what to do and how to do it. They're not really good about telling us why to do it.
0: What got you interested in ethics and algorithm? What, what drove you to that, to that interest?
1: <laughs> Precisely because the why is left out, because the ethical is often left out. I, w- I would want to reference some of the you know work that I've been reading and kind of thinking about in this area. And I reference my colleague Safia Noble, who is a professor of information studies at UCLA, who wrote a tremendously important book a couple of years ago, and I believe it came out in 2017 with NYU called "Algorithms of Oppression." And what she's looking at are unethical algorithms. So she's looking at how algorithms and code and other kinds of technical bias are built into technologies. Uh, they re-inscribe racial and gender or sexual biases. Uh, one sees this in facial recognition software, for example, or one sees, that, and you can take this all the way back to like, you know, the history of criminal profile photography and, you know, the history of phrenology and these other ways in which Technology and media have been used to quantify the body in, in profoundly racialized uh, ways. One looks at the way in which inequalities are are written into programs, and not necessarily in a kind of you know in a in a way that's necessarily obvious, but often in a way that automates, and in some ways, you know, to use Virginia Eubanks' term, automates inequality. So like, I mean, like profiling, policing, sentencing by algorithm, the work that, that's that been happening by a number of companies where they're basically developing software that can be used by judges to assess the risk uh, and, and even the future criminality of people based on, based on a set of data uh, and metrics that the algorithm has identified. So this person is more likely to be a criminal or this person already is a criminal, right? I mean, imagine how violent that is, right? Again, the algorithm, I guess, works really well when you only do what and how, but why are we doing this? What's at stake here? Who's being affected, right?
0: You're the why and the who completely left out. So if algorithms do only the what, how do we get the should, or what you've called the should, as it relates to ethics into algorithms? We you know what algorithms should not do what kind of questions and background knowledge should those who build them have? What do they need before they can start building if they're going to better encounter and perpetuate what we should do? How do we train technologists? I guess is what I'm asking to build ethical algorithms.
1: Yeah, well, this is a this is a, a, a central question, and I mean, I really like Virginia Eubanks' oath of non harm for an age of big data uh, in her book, Automating Inequality. And one of the things she's advocating for is uh, for technologists to use their skills and resources to, to build bridges for human potential, to use their technical knowledge uh, not to compound or exacerbate disadvantage, but actually to overcome it, to prioritize people over, over data and to think about how those technologies, which ultimately are, are quantifying certain things, but people are not data, right? People are not data points. And, and so how, do, how does one think about the consequences? So that's one aspect of how I think ethics needs to work. But the other aspect is to think about accountability and responsibility. So to whom are algorithms accountable, right? How are they accountable? How is accountability work in, in, in code and algorithms? how can How can we think about again treating others not as a means to an end, like say for making money or for you know whatever it is predicting criminality that's treating people as a means to an end but as an end in themselves and again that's that comes out of the an ethical tradition. I also think you know about thinking about databases not as putting all this data into a single container in order to like do something with it. But how can data be thought of in terms of as, as hospitable, like almost in a Derridian sense of, of welcoming of as a refuge of sorts. So it can, in what ways can it be used uh, for good? And what I mean there is not in order to carry out, say, again, policing or investing or some other other means, but being used to build community. For example, to being used as as essentially as as, as asylum or as as refuge uh, rather than optimized for for certain ends like predicting or monitoring populations so that's, those are those are things that i that you I know, really am, have been thinking a lot about lately and and I think we have so many examples of inscrutable algorithms of of algorithms that again really trample over ethics and freedom and and, and really raise the question of how do we bring these questions of should and ought and why and who and responsibility and accountability into how we think about uh, algorithmic uh, processes?
0: You know, there's an experience that was coming to mind for me that's actually stayed with me that I had when I first took this job at at Cal Poly, which is a polytechnic university. There was a student at a student dinner who I ended up speaking with. He was a, a mechanical engineering major and when he asked what I was doing here, I said that I was an English professor and that I was working on building a initiative in ethical technology. And his response to me was that he didn't need it in college. He took a class on ethics in high school, and he didn't really see any reason to take anything uh, beyond that. I wish that I could have given him a better answer. I, I, I couldn't come up with something really profound in the moment, but maybe you can help me answer that student and answer that question. Why should a college student in an engineering major understand and take advanced courses in college that maybe build on things in high school on the ethics of technology? Why should these humanist classes count for somebody who's planning to go into a technical field?
1: Right. Well, I think everything, you know, that we've been talking about, I mean, I hope that it gives uh, it gives reason uh, to to why the humanities and and why questions around society and and ethics are are so critical for for technology. Again, it's it's the problem of the two worlds uh, arguments staying with us. Right. As if these two things are separate, like over there is some ethics. You know, I took it in high school. I understand I should treat people nicely. And then somewhere over on the other side is technology, which is somehow divorced from these things. Uh when you see things in you know the world in these kind of radically binarized way, then then of course you're you're going to say, well, they're not the same thing but but our, but our whole point is that we we know algorithms, we know software, we know code, it does things, right insofar as it does things, there are decisions being made often you know by the programmers and by the people who control the technologies of how it's going to operate. and insofar as the questions of you know again, how it operates and what it does. Have any uh, implications for behavior? Any implications for you know raising these questions of why is it doing this? Who is it affecting? To what ends? Then clearly we need to bring together ethics and and technology. You know I think of the you know even the you know the very famous example of the so-called you know death algorithm uh, that uh, that MIT and Uber had had, had looked at. You know. Can, can the self-driving car make a moral decision, so to speak? Is it better to, you know, kill one person or, you know, four people or something, depending on how old they are or something like that? Like, at what point, this is all programmed, right? I mean, this is like, <laughs> these are all, again, these, these are all questions that the technologies are, are going to raise, and I mean, We've been dealing with the technical, the ethical issues of technology. I mean, certainly throughout the 20th century, this is not new. And really, they've, they've been well before the 20th century, too. But I think our technologies have accelerated and they've also become more violent, right, and more brutal. And so I think that there's reason to, to, to think about you know the, the 20th century in, in very, very uh, you know, unique ways. But I mean, you know, the weaponization of data is, is an example. I mean, how is data being used as, as a weapon for controlling uh, certain groups? We know, again, that differentially with regard to policing, with regard to profiling, we've had a program in Los Angeles for a number of years called, you know, predictive policing and, you know, operation laser used by the LAPD again, basically giving the LAPD information that's based on GIS, based on a whole set of data attributes, uh, criminal charges, parole, probation, uh, neighborhoods where crimes have taken place, in order to predict where crimes may happen again. And this is essentially a whole predictive policing uh, process, but what it does is it radically, you know, reduces the agency of people in those neighborhoods. It basically predetermines that uh, there's not only crime going to happen in these areas, but that the people living there are criminals. It differentially affects black and brown neighborhoods and uh, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. And again, it all works by algorithm, you know? (laughs) So again, how how could you possibly, you know, separate out the ethical and the algorithmic from the lived experiences of the people that are there who are being policed and affected by these technologies, which they don't even have access to because the data that's running them is not made is not made accountable to the public. So this is exactly another problem. Is like when the data is locked away and the technologies are locked away, we don't know how the algorithm works. We don't know how the data is generated. If it can't be scrutinized and if it's not responsible or accountable to anybody, or if it's only accountable to those who are using it, say those who are doing the policing, what about the people who are being policed? Why, why are they not able to have a say in how these technologies work and, and also in the way the decision-making is being done at the level, again, of inscrutable technology? This is very dangerous and, and very problematic.
0: You know, you, you currently act as the Dean of Digital Innovations at UCLA in the Division of the Humanities, so you are in a particularly profound and important place in this seat at a major research university to build this kind of symbiosis between the technical and the humanities and to build it so that the next generation of technologists and the next generation of humanists have the experience of that symbiosis and come to the practice and come to the field with that kind of symbiotic thinking. Where do you see the field going in the next five to 10 years? What do you think that universities could or should be building on the curricular side, on the practice side, on the research side, on the teaching side, on the pedagogical side? What kind of questions do you think, in particular, that scholars will ask mm-hmm. in this area? Yeah,
1: that's, that's a great question. And you know, certainly, there are a number of things, I think, that, that I see coming forward, certainly in terms of curricular you know, innovation and reform at both the undergraduate and, and the graduate level. And a lot of it has to do with you know, what we talked about earlier as the experimental humanities and what I would say about that is it's also putting humanist or humanistic scholarship really in the forefront or in the lead in thinking about and conceptualizing, you know, responses and answers to these large and complex social cultural issues. I, again, I don't see more disciplinary specificity happening, but actually disciplinary generality. And what I mean by that is, I mean, the broader applicability of humanistic methods, humanistic values, humanistic interpretive practices, humanistic content in fields that maybe traditionally weren't seen as the purview of the humanities. And that's really interesting to me. So, I mean, I want to think about what humanistic engineering looks like. I want to think about what humanistic medicine looks like. I want to think about what humanistic social sciences, again, these areas... In a a world where disciplines become more and more specialized and fragmented and separated from one another, I think we, we get into this problem of separation and basically of thinking about the technologies again on one side and thinking about the humanities on the other. This is why I think it's absolutely vital that the humanities are not only steering these conversations, but are also participating in how these problems are conceptualized at, at, every, at every level. I think more and more we're going to see curricular innovation happening with collaborations across the engineering fields, the medical fields, the computational fields, and the humanities and social sciences, and the arts. Um, and the arts also bring us into the forefront of speculative practices, imaginative practices, uh, practices that bring in not just the uh, questions around the aesthetic, but also ways of designing and imagining, especially designing for difference, which I think is absolutely critical. We often design for homogeneity or sameness, and it's absolutely critical that we understand the, the widest variety of differences in mean, physical, embodied, you know, economic, social, racial, uh, gendered. And this, again, is partly because we have these traditions in the humanities that are already thinking about difference, that are already highlighting the values of difference. What does that mean, you know, for, you know, folks in engineering or in the medical fields? And how does that become part of their practice still? So that's the, kind of, that's the kind of innovation that I see happening in the next five to 10 years. For undergraduates, you know, coming out, I can see, you know, specialization may make a lot of sense at the graduate level. It may make less sense at the undergraduate level. Being able to work in teams, being able to work collaboratively, being able to work across multiple fields, being able to work, again, between the sciences, the humanities, and the computational fields. These are all going to be tremendously valued skills, and they really reflect, I think, changes in the workforce and the um, you know the world that we're in right now.
0: You know, I asked you what what kinds of questions scholars are asking. What, what are your students asking you, and what do you want them to take away from their intellectual engagement with classes and learning in the areas that you teach?
1: Hmm. Well, certainly, I want them to take away the the, the excitement of of being able to make. Contributions that 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 drive change. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what I think a university can do is it provides, you know, it provides education, right? But it also provides ways for us to strengthen democracy and strengthen, I think, strengthen alliances across across differences. And and I think that this is something that's so important. Now we we we're in a a moment, a historical moment of great balkanization, of great fragmentation, of tremendous, uh, I think, uncertainty, and I, and I think uncertainty on every level, from health to to politics to society. I think we need not only the knowledge and the historical perspectives that the humanities can bring, and the questions of the of the values, but we also need to be able to imagine we need to imagine better worlds, right? I mean, this is, is not only looking backwards, right? We need to look forwards. And, and, and as we look forward, we need to harness what we know about the past, what we care to know, the the archive, the the histories. But we also have to think about uh, building, you know, possibilities for, for more uh, just, more democratic worlds. You know, we're, we're in a moment where, Again, I think that the work that we need to do is so urgent and and so profoundly uh, needed. There's a lot of reparative work, uh, I guess I would say, that, that needs to be done. And I think my students are most excited when they feel that they're participating in possibilities of restorative or reparative justice, when they're involved in taking responsibility for helping to shape world's that are truly open and democratic where we all can live. I think that's, you know, ultimately the, you know, ultimately what maybe excites me and, and my students most.
0: You know, you spoke about the importance of not just reflecting historically, but also imagining and imagining differently and I can't but apply that to this particular moment that we are in right now. One thing I heard back in March when the pandemic and the shutdown hit us, And for the first time, we were kind of bewildered in this new moment. The analogy that somebody gave me that I thought was quite potent was that it seems almost like that there had been a tree that had had grown in our society and it had fallen. And what they said was that where that tree falls, it will fall forever, and that this is the moment that we really have to engage those imaginative practices to help guide the fall and to help rebuild imaginatively and because i have you here and because you have this position as the the acting dean of digital innovation in the division of the humanities you're also someone who beyond your professional role is deeply concerned with the pressing ethical questions of should right that should is so integral to that imaginative practice. And I hesitate to ask you to comment on this moment that we're in right now, where so much of our lives is mediated and will continue to be mediated for all foreseeable futures through the digital because prediction is the lowest form of journalism and prophecy is a very low form of uh, academics. But I can't help myself because I have you here. So I have to ask, and because you've brought up the imaginative, which is the prophetic, what should we be on alert for? What kind of ethical issues should we be vigilant about right now for imagining better?
1: Hmm. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> we, we, we've, we've talked about, a, I mean a number of them already. You know, I mean certainly the, the inscrutable algorithms and uh, the data harvesting were just two you know, of the most salient examples with regard to technologies. But I think there's, there's something else that I, I find, you know, again, because of my background in, in German history, I, mean, I teach history, you know, classes on the rise of fascism, Nazism, the Holocaust. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm always loath to make comparisons to the present. I think that it's very cavalier and, and often extremely simplistic. And so I don't by any means want to say that, uh, look, it's, you know, 19, uh, whatever, 26 again or something like that. It, it's not, at least it's not in that simplistic way. But, you know, what I'm what I'm really concerned about is the inability for science and I'd say facts uh, and uh, to be well, to be to be even taken seriously anymore. That, that is to say there's one, one of the the hallmarks of, of fascism is it makes up its own stories. It makes up its own past. It makes up uh, it makes up its own future. It makes it up out of whatever facts it decides uh, are important. And it will discard, it discards reality because essentially it invents its own reality. And it does so in the most violent possible way. And, and I feel that, that we're, we're in a place of a kind of a, a neo-fascism that we have to be really vigilant for. And that's a, a kind of anti-democratic but also anti-educational and, and anti-factual and anti-scientific moment. It, it's a moment where, where, we, where there are people that do not believe that the pandemic exists, right? They do not believe that uh, an independent media is, is important or that the independent media should be able to report on things. Where essentially the distinction between fact and fiction and just flat out untruth uh, is radically kind of thrown up in the air. This, to me, is a very, very problematic moment. <laughs> you know, If I was to be on the alert for something, it's, if anything goes, if there's no longer the ability to adjudicate between fact and fiction and untruth, right? if we no longer have that ability and we no longer trust the media, newspapers, or can no longer trust them, because they've been undermined in various ways, and not only from within, but also from without, then I think we're in a very dangerous place. And that's what opens the door to authoritarianism. That's what opens the, the, the door, I think, to possibilities for significantly more violent uh, social structures than, than the ones that, that we're in right now. And, and I, I worry tremendously about that I think you know there, there are things that are true, and there are things that are false, <laughs> and there and there are things that, that, that matter, and there are things that uh, that have to do with you know democratic values, and there are things that undermine those things. And, and and I think if there's lack of clarity with regard to those distinctions, we're in a very dangerous place. And more and more, I I see that lack of clarity taking over.
0: We've come to the end of our time. I want to ask you one last question that I think. Our audience might want to ask you if they were in my seat. What advice would you give the next generation of humanists and technologists interested in, concerned about the culture and production and consumption of tech? Hmm. Great
1: question. You know, first and foremost, I would say, you know, get your hands wet. That is to say, uh, throw yourself in, Um, make mistakes. I mean, try things out. You know, don't be afraid to mess up or fail. Try again, but also be generous. Collaborate. Be willing to listen. There's a certain amount of modesty that I think is is important that, that that we all need to have because there's always going to be someone not only smarter than us but also who knows things that are different. And knowing you know across difference is such an important thing. I mean, in order to to build and, and really to think and imagine differently, we have to build across differences. And so I love when someone comes to a team, you know, with a, a skill set or a knowledge set that's radically different than my own, because it's truly going to, it's going to help bring everybody up. So this is, this is the kind of advice that I, that I would give is, you know, working in teams, working collaboratively, being generous, willing to listen, and, and also to experiment. Because at the end of the day, you know, we may have models uh, of how we want to do things, but new models also have to be fashioned right? This is, a, this is an urgent moment for, I think, fashioning new models, not in an ahistorical way, right? Not in a way that's insensitive or unknowing of the past, but in a way that's speculative and democratic and about producing possibilities for, I think, greater access and participation. And again, imagining a world that we all want to live in, that we all can live in.
0: Thank you, Todd. Thank you.